Hello, welcome back to the Cine Skinny. It's the film podcast from the top lads behind the Skinny magazine. It's me, Peter Simpson, with Jamie Dunn. Hello. And Annie Heat Barrows. Hi. We have a lot to get through today. We are going to be mostly talking about musicals. So we're talking about a couple of films, one very new film and one film from the past. One classic film uh, that are both kind of like musically minded in very different ways. We are also going to be looking at uh, musicals of the 1970s. That would be fun. What a lovely time. <laughs> I feel for context, we should say the old film we're looking at is Cabaret, which is also from the 1970s. Yeah, yeah. what was all the tension? Like, or was people going to be like, on the edge of the seat? <laughs> what film could it be? It's what, called what? Building <laughs> Intrigue, Jamie. <laughs> In the event that I decide to use a different edit of this, yeah. I'll just start again. <laughs> Intri- intrigue on the podcast, probably called the Casablanca, uh, uh, the yeah. Cabaret episodes. <laughs> This week, we're talking about Cabaret, Casablanca Beats, and uh, in honour of Cabaret, musicals from the 1970s. It's going to be a lovely, fun time. I'm already having a great time. Peter's Uh, glaring at us, (laughs) because we interrupted him a lot. (laughs) Um, So, to start off with what's everyone been watching recently, Jamie, what have you been watching? Uh, Well, I've been watching The Northman. Um, which I'm not sure if you guys have seen it yet. Uh, Robert Eggers, who is a filmmaker, talking about the past, a, a filmmaker who seems to like digging into the past, and he's done it again with The Northman. Uh, I would probably say this is my favourite of his films so far, simply because it marries his weird obsession with like ancient language and rituals with an actual plot that has a kind of bit of momentum. I think his other films are really great to look at, but I feel like they are a bit sort of... Yeah, they take a while to get going. Um, and this one, the plot is very familiar. It's basically the, the plot of Hamlet. Um, so it's as archetypical as you come. Um, but he kind of, you know, so he adds in all his kind of, his weirdness to that sort of familiar plot. So it's got lots of great Viking action chaos. It really shows his talent for stage and action because he's not really had the chance to do that really with his first two films. But yeah, he's got a really kind of lucid style. He kind of, he likes a kind of flat, tableau kind of style so it's like almost like you're watching a tapestry or something come to life it's like really really impressive it uses a lot of kind of long takes and sort of tracking shots um nicole kidman is fantastic she i think there's a little chat about her online just now but yeah she really kind of turns the film on its head because it is like a as for a long part it's kind of you know a dumb action movie with a star who doesn't say much and then she comes on and sort of blows the lid off the whole film um but yeah i would say you should catch it it's amazing did you like his other films i did like them to a certain point i like what he's trying to do um i wouldn't say i've sort of went back to see them i kind of feel there's a lot of kind of style over substance you know i don't really know what he's trying to say with those films yeah yeah, um, I, yeah I feel the same because i like i like the witch but i didn't i really disliked um what the fuck is that one the lighthouse. yeah yeah the lighthouse um, so then when everyone went crazy for the North and I was like, but are these people that like love Robert Eggers? Yeah. Okay, really. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he loves just digging into the, like the best parts of the film is like sort of when he goes into the kind of rituals that the Vikings would do. So like, uh, things like, like a kind of rite of passage as a young man, you, you pretend to be a dog and then you fart. And then you sort of take some drugs and that's like part of the ritual. Bjork turns up as a kind of like witch who predicts the future uh, yeah, so but all these things you never, never can never tell if it's in the character's head or if it's really happening as well. So it's it's quite clever in that way that he's not actually saying North North mythology is real. He's saying actually this is like all people's heads and it's you know they're all kind of religious nuts basically. But it's all really interesting. Like I'm not sure how much of any of it is real, but like there, there's a kind of it feels authentic, and I think that's what he does with his films. They always kind of have a the weirdness of them. There's a kind of ring of truth. It doesn't look like you know. Uh, people from the modern day dressed up. It, it kind of it kind of creates a kind of atmosphere where it actually feels like oh yeah we could be watching, you know snippets of what would happen. So yeah, I think he's uh, he's got a skill for that. And like I say, here he marries it with uh, an actual plot and action, which is cool. That does sound good. Yeah, I need to isolate it. Um, I'm going to put it on high on the priority list. Good stuff. And uh, speaking of people from so a film. That doesn't feel like people dressing up like they're from the past. And I think one of the films you've been watching does involve some people dressing up kind of like <laughs> they're from the past. Is this Midsummer? Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> oh well, actually, this is a bit, this, the Ari Aster is 
I think, to the end of this, so it's very midsummer. Really? Oh, that's cool. I did really like midsummer. Um, I found it really uh, upsetting, <laughs> very disturbing. I thought the most interesting thing about it was that it never got as horrifying than the first few minutes. You know how, like, most horror films, like, you know, as it goes on, like, that's where the fucked up stuff happens. Whereas, like, that bit that's, like, in the real world, and I know all of it, but, like, not ritually, like, the very beginning, well, what happens to her family, like, sets off this whole, like, spiral of grief and trauma. That is one of the worst things I've ever seen on film, ever. It was so, yeah, but it was very good. Um, and then the other film that I really want to, like, yeah, talk about, because I thought it was just, like, so exciting, is Chess of the Wind. Have you seen slash heard of it? No. So I've heard of it. Is this... I think I've heard of it. It's just, just been added to Mubi. Yes. yes. So it's just been added to Mubi, and it's this kind of... It's from 1978, I think. Um, it's this Iranian film that was made just before the revolution. And it's kind of this, like, gothic, almost haunted house, like, murder mystery-ish thing. Um, and it's very, very good. Like, as a film, it is excellent. But the coolest thing about it is, like, the story of sort of how it came to be and how, like, we're watching it now. So it was made in 1978, and um, it was screened at the Tehran Film Festival, and critics, like, slated it. Like, most of them walked out halfway through because it was very anti-Shah. So I think, like, there was just, like, all this kind of tension. And the director tried to do, like, another viewing of it, and no one turned up. And so, like, a handful of people had seen it. And then it got banned under the Shah, I think, and then it continued to be banned under the Islamic regime because it's also, like, they wouldn't fucking like that shit. Like, it has these sort of, like, queer undertones to it, and they were just like, no. So, like, no one had seen this film, and, like, every copy of it had got burned or, like, destroyed. And then the director's daughter, like, about, like, a decade ago or whatever, was doing her PhD on Iranian avant-garde cinema, and she really wanted to kind of do something with her father's film. And so started like asking around like archives to see if anyone like knew where it was. And one day her brother walked into this old antique shop in Tehran and there's like these canisters of films and the guy is like, oh yeah, I don't know what's in those. Like I'm just selling them for the canisters. And he looks inside and it's the negatives of his dad's film are just in these canisters. And so they smuggle them out of Iran. Um, and send them to Paris, where the daughter is. And I think Scorsese maybe gets involved as part of his, like, restoration project. And they restored it to, like, 4K. And now it's... I think it showed at LFF in 2020, and now it's, like, on movie. And it's so... I just love that as a story. How nice is that? But, like, no one had seen it. And now it's just, like, out in the world. And, like, you won't have really seen, like, another Iranian film like this. Like, it's so, yeah, weird, avant-garde, like this kind of sense of, like, decaying decadence oh, is so fucking good. So, yeah, if you have movie, I would really, really recommend it. Isn't that a wild story? Yeah. It's so nice. <laughs> <laughs> is there, like, a documentary to go along with it or something to tell you? No, but, so, I, so, like, I just kind of read around it. And obviously, when it, like, came out, there were, like, loads of interviews and stuff done. But I really, I would be really interested to kind of actually, because the director's still alive, but he hasn't really had much of a career because I think, yeah, they just kind of, like, tanked it. Um, but I hope he's really happy now that it's out in the world. Yeah. Oh, what a sweet story. Yeah. <laughs> um, I haven't been watching anything quite as interesting. I was I had a bit of a cold over the Easter weekend, so we decided to have a Star Wars rewatch. <laughs> so, New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, all bangers. Prequels, not good. Everybody knows that. Just want to give a special shout out to my main man, C-3PO. <laughs> C-3PO, I think, is actually kind of the heart of the whole thing because he is, when people think of, like, audience stand-ins in films, C-3PO is your audience stand-in. Confused, befuddled, annoyed about everything, constantly in a huff that he's always travelling, getting all dusty and whinging about it, having one pal who's with you who is also, like, on the kind of on the same level that you are but often has worked out what's happening slightly before you have. Um, and also, he goes from being just a complaining... A little whinging kind of tag along with the group to becoming a literal golden idol <laughs> the hero's journey in its truest form I mean, one you... loves to see it if you're going to stand any of the robots surely it's R2-D2 who saves them constantly and never gets thanked no, I'm not, I'm Where, not... where's his medal at the end that's what I want to know well, I mean he should have had one absolutely and he probably should have been as revered by the Ewoks as the rest of them exactly. but I'd like C-3PO because he is not really helping anyone 
with <laughs> he's anything. He's not a team player. <laughs> he's both not a team player and a liability to the team. Yeah. Which, <laughs> he's not even good at his job. He's like a translating droid and he always gets it wrong as well. Yeah. He's like, he's a nitwit. And he just walks in. His one move is to walk into a room and say, oh no, and then shuffle off in the other <laughs> direction. And isn't that the dream? Exactly. <laughs> I know who I am, and I'm the C-3PO of this podcast. (laughs) Okay, so first film we're going to talk about properly today is Casablanca Beats, which is the new film from Moroccan director Nabil Ayouch. Uh, It is about a rapper-turned-teacher who arrives in the Sidi Moumen neighbourhood of Casablanca to run a hip-hop class at the local cultural centre. Now, this little bit here is from uh, a Screen Daily article about the film when it got kind of picked up for distribution. The film was shot on location at the Stars of City Moumen Cultural Centre, which the director co-founded. Oh, and, really? Yeah. So oh, that's direct- so nice. The director co-founded the cultural centre that the film is set in, and the whole thing was inspired by a hip-hop workshop that was run at the centre by Moroccan rapper Anis Basboussi, who appears in the film as himself. So it's very much drawn from real events, um, and it tells the story of this kind of pulled-together group from various different cultural backgrounds from this little kind of slum area of Casablanca, um, and how they're all learning that hip-hop can make you more confident and cool. Uh, <laughs> Anahi, what did you think of Casablanca Beats? Um, yeah, this is such a funny little film because, like you say, I didn't know it was like that he'd founded the centre, but the whole film has this kind of like pseudo-documentary vibe to it. But it also is very much working in the tradition of like dead poet society. Like it's very much like, oh, what if like an inspirational teacher comes and like, you know, pull yourself up and kind of be yourself and whatever. Um, which there's like a little bit of that kind of tension in the film and that isn't quite sure what it's trying to do. Um, Anas Bespusi is really good. Um, He, yeah, like is essentially playing a version of himself who like kind of feels like his character was like made in a factory, especially for me. He's like very sexy and very like political and like trying to help the kids. (laughs) It's really like catnip. There's like this whole speech he gives about how like hip-hop is like art versus the system and the state and I was like yeah baby (laughs) it was really nice um but he kind of has this like I'm not like other inspirational teachers vibe to him so there's this like one bit where he like yells at all the kids that their lyrics aren't good enough which I was like that's a weird tack to like the brilliant thing about that moment is that he does it within the first uh, 10 minutes of meeting them so he walks in uh gives them a long inspirational and quite interesting like potted history of New York hip hop and then says, right, now start rapping. And then they start rapping and he's like, no, no, yeah. no. That's <laughs> what are you all saying? Wrong. This is shit. <laughs> and I was like, what? Your bars lack substance. It's like I'm 15. <laughs> and then they start crying. Oh my god, yeah. So it's just like a bizarre vibe to it. And I think it kind of sums up the whole film. And though the whole film is not really kind of sure what it's trying to do, but it's like heart is so in it. That I think it's still like a lovely watch. Like the tone is a mess, the genre is a mess, everything is like absolute fucking chaos. But it does kind of work because the kids are so wholesome. They're so like, well, they both are and aren't fully realized characters, and that often their plots don't really go anywhere. And there are quite a lot of like hand wavy things that like these kids have it hard, and like their parents are like telling them not to live out their dreams, but the kids themselves in that moment. And I think it does come from this sort of documentary-ish feel. They just have so much character in the way they play off each other. There's these two boys, especially, who are like best friends, who are just like commenting on everyone else's shit. It's just this chaos energy throughout that I really enjoyed. And there are some shots, I think, that really reveal like, like, yeah, this kind of real filmmaker's eye. There's this one bit where this girl is because they have these interludes almost where the kids are like rapping and it's like taken out of the film kind of like a real musical in a way that like it's not being it's not like integrated um and there's this one bit where this girl is like dancing on a rooftop and just like with Casablanca behind her and it's just yeah it's really really beautiful um it does try to tackle a lot like there are all of these conversations around religion and they have these like debates that are filmed between the kids that don't really go anywhere a lot of the time 
Um, but I think there is also something to be said about the fact that in real life, these debates often don't go anywhere. And I think it does, it's quite real in that, about that kind of circularity of that. And I think there is something to be said about these debates being put in the voice of Moroccan youth. And yeah, that kind of handheld filmmaking quality really lends to that. Um, so yeah, it is not amazing. And I think it could have been like something incredible, I think. And it isn't quite, but it is interesting and I would be interested to see what they do next. And yeah, I really fell in love with a lot of these kids. So I think it is worth watching, I think for me, but it's not like, oh my God, this is the best film I've ever seen. Yeah. Jamie, what did you reckon? Yeah, I'm roughly in agreement. Um, I guess I didn't really know what to expect coming here because I knew a little bit of the film. I knew it was at Cannes, but I didn't read any reviews coming out of Cannes. And I guess the marketing gave me the impression it was going to be a grittier film, maybe dealing with violence and... Um, in Morocco, dealing with like gangs, culture, or something like that. But it's actually much more wholesome, like you say. It's almost like if you took, and I think this is a facile example, but I think if you took fame and put it in Casablanca, it's not that far away. You know, it's just fewer, uh, you know, ankle socks, basically. Um, yeah, it's like so. Yeah, it's like it's kind of a, quite a sweet movie, and the the kids do give it a kind of real energy and bounce. They're they're all great. Um, I think it's got a really great atmosphere as well. Like like, um, I'm not not been to Casablanca, but I feel like I've been to Morocco, and it really captures you know the markets and the you know the call to prayer and the kind of the kind of strange atmosphere of you know that that kind of part of the world. Like Northern Africa has a kind of real sort of interesting flavor, and I think the film kind of captures that really well. Uh, I get the impression the director kind of got bored with the teacher plot because I feel like he kind of gives up on that and he does seem more interested in the kids and like you say it goes off in these little avenues which are quite interesting. You'll pick a few, kid, a few kids and they'll go off and have their individual story and then it usually ends with a kind of um, performance which like you say is like a fantasy performance which kind of punctuates it and those are the best parts um, I think that those kind of performances. I agree that the classroom debates were kind of dull. It reminded me a little bit of um, you know the Laurie, Lauren uh, Canny film, The Class, that won Cannes a few mm-hmm. years ago. Um, you know, so these long debates which are very circular and nothing really gets resolved. And I get the impression that it's almost semi-improvised. You know, like the kids are, it's their argument. It's you know, they're quite sophomoric the arguments. Um, uh, and yeah, it, it, the problem is he doesn't find a way of capturing them cinematically. So he just shoots it like a documentary almost. So it's handheld jagged um which I, I just found them to drag a bit and i thought it was much more interesting when they were exploring those ideas through the music or through dance um and i would yeah i think the film would have been much more successful if they maybe just did more of that to be honest but yeah I, I, quite charming like I, I like it's hard a film not to like i think because the kids are lovely there's a little beatboxer who was cool he was my favorite <laughs> it was like like the small smallest kids and he like, it was just amazing beatboxing and he got involved with everyone yeah really nice but really a bit underbaked as well I think um, so yeah and not what I expected so I think if you're if you're maybe looking at this and saying actually it looks a bit gritty and tough if you actually just want a fun night with some cool music and some sweet kids it's actually yeah it's a really fun movie yeah I think that the kind of magic almost like magic realist like bits where it turns into a mini musical are some of the strongest parts of it I think that the edit I would say the editing and structure are not particularly good. I think that you often don't get a lot of lead-in to things happening or a lot of background about who people are and why they're doing the things they're doing. There's a lot of there's just a lot of people in this story all with their own individual plot lines. And it does often just jump around um, between those people. And like you say, often you'll get to the like you were saying, Anne, you get to the end of someone's little section it hasn't necessarily resolved itself it feels like a f- even if it isn't it feels like a film that was born out of like improv workshops and things like that um but yeah the young cast are really good uh Zineb Bujema is the actor who does the dancing on the roof she's just a really amazing dancer there's some really like interesting like tones and voices coming through from that cast I feel like Anas would be a really dreadful teacher in real life <laughs> because he basically has one trick to get the kids' confidence up, which is to give them a bollocking, and then they just come back and do something better. But the class seemed to be into it, so I'm not sure. Yeah, it feel it can be quite unfocused, but I think actually almost having listened to this conversation will probably put people in a good 
mind to go and see it because because of the kind of issues with the structure, it can at times, if you don't know what's coming up, feel a bit like it's dragging. It feels like it's longer than it is on a first watch, but I feel like if you know that it's gonna be an interesting musical number or an interesting little bit of drama or an extra character is about to be added in, then that will help people get more out of it. But I think it's got a really interesting, it's got some really interesting stuff to say. It tries to say quite a lot. It's not all successful, but then what film ever is. We'll maybe get onto a film that is successful and everything shortly. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think that it's it's doing some interesting things. And it is a very um, interesting take on hip-hop and countercultural art, especially in a week when I was listening a lot to the Pusha T album that's just come out, uh, where part of Pusha T's uh, uh, kind of marketing push for the album was to do a rap for Arby's, the American fast food chain, where he talks about how good their fish sandwiches are. So if you want to kind of be rejuvenated and feeling like hip-hop can make a difference in people's lives rather than just make a difference to their bank balance, then this is a film to catch. The Pusha T album is also very good, so listen to that. <laughs> um, but yes. I kind of feel as well, like one thing I do like about this film, but I also wonder is perhaps the reason that we find it maybe like a little bit unfocused or whatever, is that I think it has like a real specificity to Moroccan politics and Moroccan culture. Um, so there's these conversations around, yeah, the Sidi Moumen, um neighborhood that they live in, which apparently is where the kind of suicide bombers in the kind of um, terrorist attacks that happened in Casablanca in the noughties, that's where they came from. And so now there's this kind of legacy of it almost as this like very violent place, like it is impoverished. And so a lot of it, I think, is coming out of these contexts, these, like, cultures. Um, And then even, I think, yeah, like you mentioned, the call to prayer and just this kind of musicality that runs through it that is very much based in Moroccan culture, I think. I think Arabic is such a beautiful language and it has, like, such a rhythm to it. Um, And so, yeah, like, there is this kind of... It doesn't feel like it is made for a Western audience, I guess. And I wonder if perhaps... If you don't know that context and you are kind of coming from the West, which obviously that is where we are as viewers, um, there are parts of it that you that wouldn't land quite in the same way they would for a Moroccan audience. Um, I'm not sure. But I did appreciate that there were things that I wasn't sure about, but then when I looked up, it was like, oh, actually, I think it is doing something that maybe I didn't appreciate on the first watch. Yeah. No, I agree with that, but I, I would say, though, even though it's not maybe waiting me for Western audience, it does have so many tropes. That, so if you do love Deadpool Society oh, or Dangerous sure. Mind, yeah. you will find something quite familiar. Mm-hmm. And if you enjoy that kind of like inspirational teacher thing, that's almost like it's almost a downer. But then it just can't it it can't bring itself to be a downer. It has to have a little uplift at the end, like Deadpool Society. It it, it does does all that. So yeah, it's it's a, a pleasing watch. And it is out this Friday in UK cinemas uh, via Corazon. And yeah, so it'll be in various places across the UK. Casablanca Beats, go and see it. Good fun. So it's the 50th anniversary in May of Cabaret, Liza Minnelli, classic movie musical, directed by Bob Fosse. Directed by Bob Fosse, set in Weimar, Germany, uh, about the cabaret goings on in and around the Kit Kat Club in Berlin. It's getting a, I believe, a full like 4K proper cinema restoration for the re-release. Exciting times. We all like it. Go and see it. Get the DVD out. Watch it. But Jamie, tell them why. Well, I think what's interesting about Cabaret is that Fosse shows you can make a movie that's deeply political without resorting to speechifying in the way that Casablanca Beats does. So because on the surface this film is about two young people falling in and out of love during the Wehrmacht era in Berlin, which is very bohemian and decadent and very free. But, you know, we know that's all going to come to an end because this love story, at the edges of it, you can see the rise of fascism in Germany and the dangerous growth of the Nazi party. Um, but it's always at the fringes. It's, you just get subtle little, uh, clip, you know, subtle clips of it. You'll see, like, Nazi propaganda on the street. You'll see... The, the aftermath of a beating, but you might not see it. There's a great section where we intercut uh, 
a can a can two Nazi thugs beating up the bouncer at the Kit Kat Club with a performance at the Kit Kat Club. So it's, it's all sort of either it's making it? fun of Nazis. Exactly. But yeah, yeah, it's so smart. Yeah, it's like it's a great scene, but like, but it's always sort of almost like subliminal you know it's like you could watch this if you watch this with half an eye on it you might just think it's just a love story um and yeah the, the film sort of i guess it's the film's talking about what happens um you know nazi um ideology grows through complacency so you have characters like sally bowles who's played by lisa minnelli, Liza minnelli brilliantly who's the singer at the kit club club she's a brilliant character but she's utterly concerned with her own dreams and her own ambitions and her love affairs and her partying and she doesn't notice that the club around her slowly becomes a hotbed for you know the Nazi party you know or you have character like Maximilian who's this kind of playboy um, who both uh, Sally and Brian get entangled with in a kind of love triangle and he he's this kind of capitalist who tolerates the Nazis he's sort of says they're fine, they're just a fringe group, they're going to get rid of the communists, you know, they're kind of serving a purpose for him. But unfortunately, no, the Nazis didn't stop there. You know, they tried to wipe out, you know. Well, you, we, know what, we know what happened. Um, and, and that's the thing about the film. It doesn't like, have to explain this kind of stuff. But, like, I love how, uh, w- like, we, we're watching it with uh, 2020 hindsight, but we can see so clearly um, what's going to happen. Um, yeah, and uh, but you can also watch it for, for purely enjoyable reasons is you know this is a film about like i say young people uh sort of expats in berlin at probably the most exciting time you know of, of being a young person in berlin you know it's like it's that's the irony it's like it's it's, it's the the hedonism and the fun of this time um is when the sort of this uh you know this ideology grows up so yeah i love how fuzz, fuzz keeps all the fringes and you know, like it, but it does have one absolutely chilling scene, uh, and it's probably the most famous scene in, in the film, which doesn't happen at the kit club. Actually, it's one of the few scenes we don't have at the club, and uh, it, it's it's set at a, a kind of um, country pub. It's very kind of pastoral, very kind of bucolic, and we have this kind of young boy who has an angel voice singing "Tomorrow Belongs to Me," which is a kind of very pastoral German sort of song about the fatherland it's about meadows and forests and very benign sounding but as the song builds and the young boy gets more crazed as he sings and the patrons around him get more excited and start to stand up and join in the scene sort of transforms into something much more sinister as the camera pulls out and the boy's revealed to be in full kind of nazi regalia uh you know and it's, it's like almost in that scene and i wonder it's the whole film it's we realize too late what's going on so we get carried up in the song, and you'll find yourself humming that song along with all the great songs in the film because it's like you know it's a it's a nice song, um, but yeah, it's like it, it just becomes so dark um, when you start to look at when you kind of pull out and you see what it means. Um, you know, uh, Liza Minnelli is fantastic in this. I think uh, I think in the Isherwood stories that it's based on, it's based on sort of Christ- I don't know if I said that it's Christopher Isherwood's time in Berlin, and it's kind of based on the short stories he wrote then. And Sally Bowles was was based on a woman he knew, and in the short stories, she's meant to be quite mediocre. That's kind of the joke, because this kind of aspiring actress who's never going to go anywhere. But kind of the thing about Liza, Liza Minnelli, she's so fucking good. She's like incredibly charismatic, uh, and she can have every song she fills with so much emotion. It's like heartbreaking to watch uh, that she kind of. I don't know, she ruins the character for anybody else who's tried to play it. I think she's just been so iconic that nobody's sort of really filled her shoes. Um, you know, she's this kind of amazing, sort of kooky, manic energy. Uh, and she's like bittersweet and sexy and funny. Yeah, it's one of the great screen performances. She won an Oscar for it. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's a kind of masterpiece because, uh, like I say, it's got all these kind of pleasures, but it's also incredibly chilling and one of the kind of great films about sort of this era uh, in in Berlin so yeah Annie yeah I completely agree it's so fucking good I love this film so much oh my god I don't understand how it's from 1972 because it is so utterly modern like it's weird and kinky and queer there's this one like shadow puppetry scene of like this BDSM show which is just wild the people are wearing stockings and leather and they're being like horny little freaks everywhere and it's just I can't believe it's 50 years old like it's bananas 
the songs are nonstop bangers. Like, they're so good. Um, but I think for me, what really was like, made me think, oh my God, this is one of the best films I've ever seen, is just this kind of amazing visual sensibility that it has throughout. Like, it's drawing on that kind of aesthetic of German expressionism. And there's this really, really cool bit. I think it's towards the end where the MC, who is just such a vibrant, weird little character, um, he's like performing to the audience and there's these like stills that are almost the patrons are like frozen in place. Um, and these kind of sudden tableaus that are like intercut really quickly, like blink and you'll miss it. And there, um, one of them especially is recreating like an Otto Dix painting. And I think quite a few of them are in that sensibility. And it's just, yeah, such a like painterly, vibrant film and just very much captures that kind of idea of the early 20th century, that kind of sense of modernism and like fragmentation. And yeah, like Liza Minnelli, she has these huge fucking eyes with these amazing eyelashes. Every time I watch this film, I'm like, should I? Should I buy new mascara? Should I like do something? (laughs) And her eyes are like this Picasso painting, but they're just like odd in her face. And it's just everything about the film is just something's just slightly wrong, but it's also so seductive at the same time. Um, yeah, it's like dark and grimy and haunting, but it's also so funny. Like uh, this is the second time I've watched it and I didn't remember just how like comic it is at time. It has this amazing, it's one of the best edited films I've ever seen. And there's this amazing use of abrupt cuts, which like, yeah, like you mentioned that bit where they're intercutting the like beating up with being able to make fun of the Nazis. And it's like, yeah, they think they're safe, but they're not. But they also use this editing to like great comic effect where like they keep cutting to Sally's face and she's just got this kind of almost like vaudeville like expression. Like it's just so stagey. Um, And yeah, it's just one of the best films I've ever seen about that degeneration into collapse when everything else is just carrying on. And I think that feels particularly potent these days because everything is awful, but we're carrying on, right? Um, and there was this article I read, like, back in, I think it was when the 2020 election was happening in the States. And this guy, I think he was from Sri Lanka, and he was writing, and he was like, yeah, Americans keep waiting for, um, like, the end of the world to, like, just drop, like, a punch from the sky. But he was like, I've lived through the end of a civil war, and the way that you know that it's bad is that you carry on, like, your life carries on, like, you go partying, you go on dates, everything's fine, and around you, people are just, like, dying, and weird things are happening, and that is a sign that your society is collapsing, and watching this film, like, I very much, like, it felt like that, like, that relationship between excess and disaster, and I was just like, oh, that's, that's what we're doing right now, (laughs) it's upsetting, but it's also really good, yeah, I love it, if you haven't seen Cabaret, the idea that you can see it for the first time on a big screen is so exciting. Like, you should go the first day it's out. You should go immediately. Oh, man. Do you also love it? It's very, very good. (laughs) It's so, yeah, it's so strange and kind of unsettling. I think that it's very effective at creating the sense that something is about to go incredibly wrong. Um, I really like how just lots of just what would superficially be quite odd decisions that all work strange camera angles, weird bits of lighting, the fact that so much of it is in a cabaret club where there's like mirrors and lamps and you come, because it's all in the dark as well, you occasionally get just big blown out bits of light and like you get weird reflections off stuff. It kind of doesn't let you settle down for very long. Um, And it also feels very real, which is something I often struggle with, with musicals. I know that like that is, and we'll get onto that in a bit, that musicals often present this very kind of like heightened like almost surreal version of events but this does a really good job of doing all the functional stuff that a good musical does having good songs having a good like well-paced plot mixing in like character with just like straight up entertainment but it also feels very grounded it feels like it could all just be shot in actual houses in actual cabaret clubs yeah it feels very like real and like you say that's what makes it so horrifying and I guess that's why it feels modern because unlike the kind of classic um, Hollywood musicals, nobody bursts into song really. The only time you see people sing is on stage. It's like mm. it, it makes sense that people are singing because we're in a club. So it's not like an MGM where Sally and Brian will, will lock arms and arms and dance down the street while Nazis are around. You know, it's not. It's not like that. So like it's it's that's maybe why it still feels modern because it doesn't sort of play the old 
musical rules. You know, I don't know, and it's, I'm not sure if it's the first film to do that, but it's certainly one of the early ones I remember doing that. And you see that, you know, a lot of films do that now. You know, something like Once, for example, like mm. it, it, it will integrate a musician into the film so it can uh, be a musical. But uh, yeah, Cabaret sort of does that uh, well before um, a, lot of, a lot of films were doing that. It's very, very good. Go and see it. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, yeah, so in, back in cinemas from the 6th of May, 50th anniversary, Cabaret. Oh, it's very good. Very good. We all love it. Five stars from us. Lovely stuff. Okay, so in the notes about Cabaret, Anna Heat had written, I love this film, four exclamation marks. <laughs> How is it from 1972? And when you look at a film like Cabaret and realise it's from the early 1970s, it made us all kind of think about the 1970s, particularly in like movie musicals and how... It was kind of the start of an interesting new phase for musicals and particularly musicals on the big screen. So, Jamie, what was what the hell was going on? Well, last thing when you talk about seventies American cinema, you do think of like the New Hollywood, don't you? I think that's what first comes to mind. You know, you think of like Coppola, Scorsese, Robert Altman, Peter Bogdanovich, people like that. And what's interesting to me is all those directors tried to make a musical. And all kind of failed. Well, well, not uh, Altman, but but most of the Hollywood directors did. So you think of Coppola; he made uh, One from the Heart, which basically bankrupted his company, uh, Zootrope, um, because of the spiraling costs. Then Scorsese made New York, New York, um, which was brilliant, but kind of savaged by the critics at the time, and was a flop. And sent Scorsese on a kind of drug fueled depression. Um, and, and everybody kind of knows the film now more for the Frank Sinatra cover than actually the movie. I don't think it's kind of underseen still. Um, Bogdanovich made At Long Last Love in 1975 with Civil Shepherd and Burt Reynolds, and it was a disaster because neither of those could swim, uh, sing. <laughs> it was just a really bad film. Um, and I think the only kind of great cel- like celebrated New Hollywood musical might be Nashville, which was Oscar-nominated and was a box office success. But that was kind of not aping the 40s musical it was kind of trying to be its own thing and it was doing sort of the cabaret trick of it's set during a kind of country and western musical so all the music is integrated and it's kind of in situ rather than sort of people bursting into song for no reason um so yeah love of uh, yeah so that's that's kind of it's interesting that 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 decade you have all these directors who grew up watching musicals you know scorsese loves mgm he loves the 40s same with coppola but they never quite could do it and there was something about those directors which I don't know they were just more interested in sort of darker themes that it never kind of quite uh, like uh, jived with like the musical but there were kind of other examples of musical but maybe they were a bit more on the cheesier end they, were kind of, they weren't sort of taken as quite as seriously as the kind of films of the new Hollywood. But then because of maybe because of the kind of films that were getting made around that around that kind of time there were a lot of very, very odd musicals doing the rounds, weren't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's such a bonkers decade for musicals. Like, it feels... Weirdly, the 70s musicals feel like a product of the 60s in that everyone went insane and took a lot of drugs in the 60s and then they emerged into the 70s and were like, what if we made musicals but they were fucked up and weird? And I love that about them. Like, especially, yeah, thinking about that sort of, like, Hollywood age, like the MGM age, um which is just so staged and so controlled. And, like, I love MGM musicals, like, that kind of choreography, and they're really quite theatrical. There's this real kind of emphasis on spectacle to them, whereas there's this kind of strange mix of realism and surrealism that comes with the 70s musicals. So you have things like Willy Wonka, um, Rocky Horror, obviously, it's just like, <laughs> what the fuck is going on in that film? Doesn't Sting appear halfway through? No, Meatloaf. Meatloaf yeah. appears halfway through. Why? Who can say? Um, and they just have like such a, yeah, absolutely bizarre sensibility. And I think building a lot on the kind of instability of identity and culture that came out of the sort of post 60s, um, post like, um, what is the word? Cultural revolution. Well, yeah, cultural revolution, but I don't mean in the, like, Marxist sense. No, no, well, I guess <laughs> counter, counterculture. Yeah, counterculture, there we go, that's the word. Um, yeah, so they're, like, very much coming out of that. And so what you then end up having is things like 
Fiddler on the Roof. Who would have thought that you could make like a whole singing, dancing musical about the Russian pogroms? Like what, what is, like it shouldn't work. And yet it does. Um, and yeah, I just, it was such an interesting decade. And I don't think I'd really thought about them as a group before until, yeah, we were doing the notes for this podcast and we were just like, what if we talked about classic musicals? And we just kept narrowing it down. There was like, wait a second, look at the 70s. Like the 70s were like a whole thing. Um, there's just such an, yeah, embarrassment of riches. And there's so many I still haven't seen. I've never seen Hair, which is also obviously like coming very much out of that like post-Vietnam um, anti- like Nixon, like anger. Um, and I hear it's meant to be, I hear the film itself isn't amazing, but it, it is, I think, very much like engaging with that kind of, yeah, just they feel weird and they feel angry. And I like that about them. An odd, truly an odd bunch of lads, but we're each going to kind of go through one that says something about the 70s. So maybe we'll go New Hollywood first. So, Jamie, what was your. Well, like I say, I love Nashville, but my favourite new Hollywood musical is from Brian De Palma. Uh, it's The Phantom of the Paradise, which is kind of like an atypical De Palma film. De Palma, you think of making thrillers and gangster movies um, and things like that. But this is his comedy musical rock opera, um, which was a critical and box office disaster, like many of the other uh, um New Hollywood films, but I, th- I think it's great. And it actually, weirdly, was successful in some countries, like Canada loves it, for example. It was much more popular in Canada than the, <laughs> the Rocky Horror Picture Show, for example, which it shares some sorts of similarities. Um, it's a kind of weird film. It's kind of blend of the Faust tale with Phantom of the Opera, with Frankenstein, with the picture of Dorian Gray, and it tells how this songwriter called Winslow, who's played by William Finley, uh, is screwed over by this kind of sleazy Phil Spector-style record producer called Swan, who's played by Paul Williams, who's also the composer of the songs in the film. Uh, Yeah, it's very complicated. Uh, You know, it's sort of, it's kind of very stylish. It's super department that way. You know, it's like all about the kind of, he loves, uh, he loves a a kind of tracking shot, a a kind of wild camera angle. He kind of stages the music part. It's great. Um, It's also kind of really, a kind of parody of music from that time because uh, what happens is Swan steals Winslow's songs and he gives them to his band who go through this kind of these kind of revolution uh, sorry reinventions. Uh, so it start they start off as this kind of do what band called the Juicy Fruits and then they become this kind of surf band who are basically like a rip off of uh, the the, uh, the Beach Boys uh, called the Beach Bums I think they're called and then it morphs into like a Kiss style glam rock <laughs> band. Uh, so it's just wild um, and it's really inventive. What happens to Winslow is he gets banged up in the slammer and then he gets his face burnt off in a kind of weird vinyl accident when he escapes. And then Swan makes a deal with him because <laughs> Swan is in league with uh, the devil and it means both of them are locked in a certain pack so they can't die until the other dies type thing. It's just bonkers, crazy. De Palma's having so much fun. He's also kind of uh, putting in scenes which are like homages to Psycho and... Uh, like uh, the Touch of Evil, there's like a great tracking shot where do you know the start of Touch of Evil where uh, like the bomb is put in the car? He does that bit in miniature with the little car that's on stage. It's, it's hilarious. He, like he's just like he throws everything at it. A lot of it sticks. Uh, Paul Williams, the music is great because Paul Williams, um, I think this is maybe his first film, but he went on to make Bugsy Malone, which is another weird seventies musical. Uh, he wrote a lot of the music for the Muppet movies. Um, he wrote music for Elaine May for Ishtar, which is another great musical from a kind of new Hollywood legend. So yeah, it's it's so much fun, wild. If you like Rocky Horror Picture Show, I think you should see this because it's probably better, I would say. Um, Rocky Horror Picture Show kind of, sl- uh, you know, drags a bit in the end, uh, towards the end, but this is like full-on bangers all the way. Great fun. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, what Can you watch it on? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't checked that out. I presume you can watch it on various streaming platforms. It's like Brian De Palma, Phantom of the Opera, Faust, Dorian Gray into Google, then something will come up. <laughs> I haven't checked. It, 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 God wa- knows what. It was on, it was for, I, I watched it a few years ago on Prime uh, for free. I'm not sure if it's still there anymore. Okay. But it's The Phantom of the Paradise. The Phantom of the Paradise. Anahi, we mildly alluded to the thing that you're about to talk yeah. about just there. <laughs> and uh, from another angle of the 1970s movie musical... We have the Muppet movie. The Muppet movie. <laughs> yeah, so uh, 
very different, but also apparently kind of similar in that the same person wrote the music. Uh, so this is the first foray of the Muppets into cinema with a capital C. Um, and it truly is cinema with a capital C. This is one of the best films you'll ever see in your life. It is equally weird in terms of the 70s musical tradition, but it is, I think, maybe a lot more like wholesome than most 70s musicals. Um, so the kind of plot, <laughs> in so much as what the plot is, uh, Kermit and his ragtag group of friends. So Kermit is like talent um, spotted in the swamp that he lives in by a uh, like Hollywood agent who shows him this newspaper that just like says like, are you a frog and do you want to get rich? Come to Hollywood. And he's like, yeah, baby. <laughs> so he sets off for Hollywood and then somehow comes across the owner of a frog leg restaurant who, and the, like when I first kind of heard this part, I was like, oh, this guy is going to be like chasing him for his legs. Like he wants to put him, like take his legs and put like, you know, make him part of the menu. But it's even weirder than that. He wants him to advertise <laughs> his like frog leg restaurant. And Kermit just feels very like ethically, honestly, <laughs> not okay with this. There's this amazing line where he's like, all I can see is a bunch of frogs on crutches. <laughs> it's just, oh, sweet angel. Oh. So they're just like, then he kind of comes across Fozzie the Bear and they like get together and eventually meets and falls in love with Miss Piggy and she comes along and yeah like picks up this ragtag group of Muppet friends who are being chased across the country by this man who owns a frog leg restaurant it's just the greatest premise of all time it is deliciously meta like it's so funny there is like yeah some of the smartest writing you will ever see in like filmmaking ever there's this one bit where a joke that isn't that good a joke, but it's just delivered in such a good way is said for the second time. And Kermit just looks at the camera and he's like, oh no, it's a running gag. <laughs> and it's just very good. Um, there's this other bit where they like hand this, so they come across Electric Mayhem, which is obviously Animals rock band. Um, and they're like, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh my God, like the audience would get bored if we explain. So here's the script. And he hands the script to the guys like flicking through it to understand how they got there. And then later in the film, these guys come across to me. He's like, how did you know where we were? And he's like, it was in the script. <laughs> it's just so good. The cameos are like out of this world. There's this one very good bit where Steve Martin is playing this stroppy waiter in one of like the supporting roles of the century. There's this really gorgeous bit towards the beginning where they drive by Big Bird, who's off to New York to make his fortunes in like TV. <laughs> TV producer. It's just really great. It's just the best time ever. It doesn't talk down to anyone. It. I don't think it is a children's film. I think it really is. It was. It like belongs to that period of cinema where like things almost didn't feel categorized into like children and adult. Like you could kind of, as an adult, you could watch it, and as a child, you could watch it, and it wasn't trying to do anything. It's not patronizing. It's not like doing that weird thing that I think sometimes films do these days, where they're like wow, children like colours, children like shapes, and they're kind of almost like pedagogically designed. It's just like really annoying. It's just a good time for everyone. I would really recommend it. I had such a nice time. It was very good. Well, the things about the Muppets, like, you do watch them as a kid and you just love it because they're daft and chaotic, yeah. but when you grow up, you realise like so many jokes went over your head. Yeah, and they're such good jokes. I, I would argue that the Muppets series is probably the best, most consistently good film series there is. Like, there's no sort of yeah. drops. Like, they're all good. Um, especially when you get to, like, the 90s, like, Muppets Christmas Carol and stuff. Like, just yes. so, so fantastic. Because it was Treasure Island, the last one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if the Muppets had to remake a novel and could only have... This is a question that goes around Twitter a lot. Uh, but apparently we might all be going off Twitter because now Elon Musk has bought it. So I can say this on the podcast. <laughs> like, what book could it be and what character? Like, what actor? Oh, God. Well... Probably, I'm sure they'd do like a good Jane Austen or something like that. Like that would be fantastic. Like, uh, yeah, or or like uh, you know, like something like like the Three Musketeers. You know, like that could be fun. Like any, basically anything. I think they can. It could be applied to basically any genre. Yeah. You could you could do like a noir Muppets. You could do like all sorts. And the thing about the Muppets as well is that they do the 
the neat trick of they're always they're always one step removed watching the character of Fozzie Bear pretend that he is in this story. Yes. Yeah, it, yeah. Because when they do the whole thing of like the great Gonzo is Charles Dickens, it's like it's not that he actually is. He's one step removed from it. So he's like, I know that as the great Gonzo, I am playing the character of Charles Dickens. This is the thing, and in this film as well, like it's kind of bookended by all of the Muppets um, are going to this private screening of the Muppet movie. And so, like, at the beginning, they're all sitting down. You have those two guys that play, um, like, oh, God. Statler and Waldorf. Thank yeah. you. Yes, those two. Um, and they're just like, this is going to be shit. <laughs> <laughs> and they're just taking the piss from the very start. And then towards the end, you kind of have it go back. And they're like, oh, that was like, you know, all the Muppets are really happy to have seen themselves on screen. And I think the reason the Muppets have worked for so long is exactly what you say, that, like, the characters themselves are created first before they play anything else. And so you just have like such kind of investment in this idea of come the frog as something real before he then decides to play. Um, is it Bob Crusher that he plays? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, and it just that's why like you're not watching him play Bob Cratchit really you're yeah. like oh that's my favourite actor Kermit the Frog <laughs> that's doing a new role and that's so nice yeah. and they also do a really really good job I think one of the things about the Muppet movies in general that they do is they mix up they cast them really well and that sounds like a really strange thing to say but like some of the Muppets really earnestly play their parts <laughs> and some of them constantly mug for the camera and refuse to learn their lines. And that gives it so much character because it isn't... Like when you see a lot of them... Like with modern kind of kid-aimed entertainment, there can be a tendency to just like plonk character X into situation A, but that's not necessarily what happens with the Muppet stuff because there is a feeling that they feel like they've been cast. It feels like there is somewhere a cloth casting director <laughs> with a big notepad... It's like, well, Fozzie will play the, uh, he'll play the confused old, um, like, mill owner who throws massive Christmas parties. That's just obvious. Yeah. <laughs> what are we going to get Rizzo to do? He could just play himself, it'll be fine. <laughs> and the music's great. The music like, is like great. Like, Rainbow Connection is an absolute classic song. It's so yeah. good. Yeah, it is just a perfect film. Would really, really recommend it. I also have no idea where you can watch it. I was going to say, I'm getting the sense we should probably do a Muppet theme show. Like oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, made for Christmas. We can do like a Christmas special. Yeah, that'll be cute. Uh, do you have a uh, adaptation that you'd want them to do? Since you that? I can't. I think like them doing lemurs would be very funny. Um, more than adaptation, I feel they should a hundred percent do a Muppet kind of like you know adaptation of whatever, where the only human actor is Jeremy Strong. Because he would, like, commit to the bit. <laughs> Which is kind of what Michael Caine did, right? He was yeah. like, I am playing Charles Dickens. Like, I am in a Dickens adaptation. I'm going to play it like a Dickens adaptation. Everyone around him is like, oh, no. <laughs> That's not what we're doing. What about Muppet Succession? Just like... <gasps> yes! Could you imagine? <laughs> oh, my God. Yes, I would. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It would be great. Great <laughs> Gatsby just went public domain. <gasps> yes! There we go. Lewis yeah. in from the, in from the <laughs> side. With... <laughs> <laughs> With the best idea of the podcast. <laughs> Muppet Great Gatsby, Jim Henson Company, call us. Um, so the interesting thing about Phantom of the Paradise and the Muppet movie is they both, they have the thing that a lot of these movies have where they reflect previous generations and previous modes of cinema. Um, and they take things that have happened in the kind of recent developments of cinema and then reflect those forward. And the film that I want to talk about is what happens when that becomes like weaponized and turned into something that can be uh, turned on the audience, which is the blood crazed fever dream of every boomer who wishes they were cool in high school. It's Greece. <laughs> it is the word. It's got groove and it's got feeling. One of the things about Greece that's weird on a rewatch is it is structured like a dream, in that the opening number is like a bit of light 70s funk that is very of the time. Grease the Musical came out early 70s, the film adaptation came out later on in the 70s, but then it goes straight into that imagined nostalgic 1950s, no parents, no, like you're at school but you're never in a class. One of the things I want to say straight away is I am not making the point 
that these alleged school kids look ancient, therefore I have lost immersion. Like, <laughs> this 17-year-old has a receding hairline, I don't buy this. What I'm saying, my argument on Greece, is that these 35-year-olds, kind of similar to the Muppets, these 35-year-olds are playing 35-year-olds acting out their false memories of how cool they were in high school. It's not that they're supposed to be teenagers. They're in, I would read it as they're supposed to be adults who think that they're replaying their teenage selves. Like reverse Bugsy Malone. Yes. Okay, <laughs> yes. <laughs> the scale of the thing is enormous. It really does like harken back to those old-time musicals. You watch like Summer Lovin' or You're the One That I Want. There's just bodies everywhere. There's just constantly stuff happening. And then the other things that lead to this led to me thinking of it like, well, you can see it as a kind of like dreamish text is they talk about Rydell High ending up on national TV for the big dance contest. The actual text in the film is that their school was picked as a representative American high school. It's like, <laughs> welcome to Everyman USA, where like, we're all just going to hang out in our leather jackets and be cool, like everyone was in school. <laughs> And there's all these things that, like, the stereotypical heroes of this kind of tale are either sidelined or just getting mocked from the other side of the room. Uh, the fact the teachers just help the guys build the car for their illegal drag race, just that just starts happening. But I think the thing that's really interesting about it is as a document of the early stages of nostalgia as a real, like, commercial imperative, and the one of the first texts in that... 20 to 30 year nostalgia loop that still like exists and dominates so much of media now the fact that this film and cabaret both have roughly the same gaps between their initial release and the events that they are purporting to describe is wild when you think about it that like cabaret really immerses itself in its time period it doesn't shy away from what the reality of that was but greece presents this really flat version of the 50s in this very kind of like nostalgic this is what it was like honest gov kind of <laughs> way um so i mean in a sense it's kind of like uh you know the the initial text of the old man yells at uh, cloud you know back in my day things were different kind of school of media um and it that means that even though it's like nearly a decade older than Cabaret, it feels so much more old-fashioned. It's like seven or eight years after yeah, Cabaret yeah. came yeah. out. It just feels like a much less, much less modern film than something like Cabaret or the Muppet movie does. Yeah, it feels like it belongs more to the 80s and that kind of um, back to the future nostalgia yeah. for the 50s, yeah. for sure. Yeah. It was the starting pistol on that kind of nostalgia in a way. Yeah. And it, yeah, I think the, compa the comparison with Cabaret is really interesting because Cabaret is like, wow, how did we get into this fucking mess? And Greece is like, but remember, like, after we got out of this fucking mess and like how great we were and how great consumerism was and how great the 50s were, it was like, oh, we learned no lessons. Yeah, remember Go Grease Lightning? <laughs> that was fun. Well, I'd say the star was maybe American Graffiti. Which is kind of like Greece, but with music, with without music. Yeah. Basically, it's the same idea. That's George Lucas's, I think, second film before he went on to like be a huge director after Star Wars. Going back to Star Wars, every 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 road ends to Star Wars. But <laughs> but what always blows my mind in Greece is like if you were thinking of setting doing something similar now, we would be going back to what early two thousands, and it doesn't feel like shut up, yeah, we would. <laughs> it's like that's the same gap, and it doesn't something. <laughs> Like, something happened in the world, clearly in the 60s and 70s, where the world can completely changed. And I don't think we could really do that same... You'd have to go back to at least the 80s, I think, to have to feel that same sense of remove. Or maybe it's just because I'm old and I feel like that. But then part of that, I would argue, is that it's because of the nostalgia loop. That because the things that came out in the late 70s, early 80s were influenced so heavily by things that were 20 years before those, the next things that came in the two decades after that were influenced by those th uh, those things from the 80s and then further back. So maybe that's why it feels like if you were to try, like there's something special about that time, but also that was kind of, yeah, the initial like weaponization of this kind of nostalgia. And that now has in and of itself become a thing that people are nostalgic for. Yeah. And I also feel like 
my brain is slightly broken by the maths that Jamie just did because that's really upsetting to me. But I also feel the noughties are kind of like a cultural void <laughs> in a lot of ways. They're quite hard to do that sort of nostalgia loop with. Um, a, because of, I think, what was essentially in American culture, especially that kind of like post 9-11 trauma, um, which obviously like dominates a lot of how they feel about things. Um, and then also that just everything looked bad. Like everything in the noughties looked so terrible that you can't quite have that same. But maybe you will in a few years. I mean, the kids are already wearing, like, if you go into Urban Outfitters right now, like it's all, I sound so old, but it's all. <laughs> you know what? All, You're right, though. <laughs> I am right. Like, it was so traumatic being a girl in the noughties and having to wear, like, these awful jeans that were like so low cut and like uh, and now I walk into Urban Outfitters and it's the same shit these horrible little like crochet tops that are like a little triangle oh my god it's terrible mm. so maybe cinema is about to follow but cinema shouldn't follow no. I'm telling cinema here on this podcast don't do it naughties are bad they are not no but for all we're going to slag off Greece can we agree the music is great well that's what I was about to say that if you made a nostalgic late 90s early 2000s musical would be full of like new metal whereas, <laughs> whereas at least like yeah Greece does drag at points it's got some kind of like some retrograde opinions and it is essentially boomer propaganda for the idea of boomers but the songs slap ridiculously hard so I mean I have been humming Greece is the word constantly <laughs> for about a week I mean, and that's not going to happen if someone makes like the Nickelback musical. Wait, I actually would. <laughs> I find Nickelback really catchy. <laughs> I'm sorry. Now that we're like saying though that what would it be? I remember that there was like a tweet I saw about someone making a film like that and talks to make a film about like the indie rock period of the noughties. Um, oh, like kind of Strokes. And yeah. Like New York. And I'm now, yeah. I obviously like, don't remember any details apart from that so I'm just like scrolling through my Twitter lines <laughs> to try and find it but we can carry on the conversation I'll tell you if I find it <laughs> yeah. so 1970s musicals an odd group a strange energy but a legacy and like you said Jamie a lot of these like a lot of experimentation in the sense that a lot of things that just didn't really work yeah. but that were then later either revisited or those people learned from it and moved on and also I think they all look better in retrospect. Like New York, New York was a failure, but looks great, you know. And um, One from the Heart, the Coppola film, was a failure, but it stands up, I think. So like these films, I guess, were rejected because they were looking back. Um, in, a, in, a, in a weird way that um, Greece wasn't for some reason, but like, yeah, there's, there's something about that era where we were looking forward, but now we're at a point where we want to look back. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, they, they, they all, they all those films that kind of failed look better in retrospect, I think. Yeah. Any, anything to add, or are you still trying to find this tweet? <laughs> I'm still trying to find this tweet. <laughs> <laughs> Go to someone else in the okay. audience. Okay, and then before we go, we've got some very exciting news. Some very exciting real-world, real-life news, which is that we have got a couple of real-life IRL film screenings coming up in Edinburgh. Jamie, tell the people about these film screenings. We have. I'm super excited. Uh, we are going to start the Cine Skinny Film Club, um, and we are going to start it off with uh, a retrospective of the short films of the very talented and nice young filmmaker from Glasgow called James Price, who is, uh, yeah, so we're just going to show a bunch of his films. He's super talented. He's got the kind of style which... It is part Peter Mullen, part Lynn Ramsey, but also he's got a kind of American swagger. I think we called him uh, the Scorsese, sorry, the Springburn Scorsese. And I think that fits. It's like, you know, it's not just blowing smoke on his ass. I think he has, he has got like, he has got a kind of sensibility where he kind of, he, he's got a swagger. He's got, he, he uses form in a really interesting way um, in, uh, in the way that kind of not a lot of young Scottish filmmakers do. So yeah, really talented. Um, can't wait to show his films. And we're going to pair it uh, with the Safdie Brothers' Good Time, which I think chimes very well with this film. They're both filmmakers who are very much make films about place. Uh, James is making films about Glasgow, and the Safdie Brothers obviously make great films about um, street life in New York. So uh, I think they'll go very well together. So those two screenings are both on the 18th of May, Wednesday the 18th of May, 
at Summer Hall in Edinburgh and you will be able to find more details and get tickets. Um, we've got like a double bill ticket that we've sorted out as well. So if you want to come for the whole thing, you can. Uh, if you go to summerhall.co.uk or look in the notes, there'll be a link to get tickets. It'll be a lovely time. I think we'll all be there. I will be on a plane to New York. And he will be on a plane to New York. <laughs> I will not be there, sorry. So she will not be able to discuss your ideas for Muppet-based <laughs> adaptations. I will but not. if you but... find me or Jamie, we'll pass them on. <laughs> Thank you so much. I also found uh, what I wanted to mention, which is that Succession's Nicholas Braun, the tallest man in the universe, is developing a noughties indie music series for HBO. Ah. So there we go. That's the Nostalgia Loop doing its work. Anyway, Lovely sorry, stuff. carry on. <laughs> um, Summerhall.co.uk for the tickets for those 18th of May I think the first screening is going to be lit just before 7 o'clock and the second one is going to be lit at half past 8 uh, James Price lovely guy really great films nice mixture of like kind of gritty nighttime tales but also with a real heart to them and also lovely guy always brilliantly dressed we put on a short film screening uh, a couple of years ago and he came down and he was dressed all in white and he looked fucking brilliant. He was wearing a white puffer jacket and white jeans and a white baseball cap. And I was like, yes! You know, when you think filmmaker, that's what you want to see? That man was dressed to impress. Pulled it off. So no pressure, James. Put on, put on, get the get your glad rags on. Get the good dogs out. Because he's doing a Q&A after the screenings, isn't Hopefully, he? Hopefully, yeah. yeah. We're hoping that James will come along and do a little Q&A. And uh, yeah, it should be a good time. We're going to have join us for a few drinks in the summer hall afterwards. It'll be great. Yeah. Not just a good time. A good time. Good time. I know. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we should now. end at that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think on that note, it's as good a time as any to finish. Um, yeah. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Anahit. Thank you, Peter. Cheers. And we will be back in two weeks' time. Bye. 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 Bye.